Well, hey, good morning. Good to see you here. Good to see those of you online. Uh, pretty cool. We actually have people all over the world joining us this morning online. So a special welcome to uh, those of you who aren't even local. Uh, what a cool thing that God is doing in this day where uh, you can engage with God's word from anywhere. And what a, what a cool thing. So we're really glad that you're here. Glad that you're with us. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors. I'm part of our preaching team. And uh, we're going to be continuing our study in the book of John. And I want to say something, especially to those of you who are watching online throughout the service, you'll see a phone number pop up. And at that point or any point, you can just make a note of that and texting questions that you might have. Uh, we're going to have a time after the service where um, the questions you send, Alessi will get, and then we'll kind of do a live impromptu Q&A based off that stuff. So uh, those of you in the room, you're welcome to send in questions as well, um, but you're going to have to go on later online to watch the answers, I guess. Or you can stand around the camera. That'd be a little bit weird. I don't know. My, my kids want to just stand in the background of the camera and like moonwalk and see if anyone notices, but don't do that, please, okay? Um, but uh, yeah, so that's what we're doing. Hopefully that'll be a helpful way for you to engage with this. I'd love it if the questions could be largely about what we're talking about, um, but hey, you do what you need to do. All right, so uh, let, me, let me pray and we'll dive in. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we pray that it, you would use it to reveal yourself to us. We have sung this morning already about the preciousness of Jesus. God, that though the wrong is off so strong, you are the ruler yet. Help us to see and experience that by your spirit today. Open the eyes of our hearts so we can see wonderful things about Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, you know, for years, people had asked him the same question. He's got the same question all the time, over and over, everywhere he went, everyone that got to know him. And the question made sense because it had been a long time since the events that really shaped him had taken place, and he'd told the stories. There were things he'd seen, there were things he'd heard, and, and everywhere he went, he had this opportunity to tell some people about the things he'd heard and the things he'd seen. They were profound, they had shaped him. He was a young man when he first heard these things, maybe 20 years old, and these things just absolutely changed the trajectory of his life. And so now here he was, 50 or so years later, and he kept getting the same question. Are you ever going to write this down? I mean, those things that, that you tell us, they're so important and they're so amazing and it, it feels like you should write this down. The pressure really ratcheted up when he started hearing about the other three because people would come and say, don't you know what Matthew wrote down? Don't you know what Mark and Luke wrote down? John, are you going to write this down? So I have to think that the Apostle John, who'd been a follower of Jesus as a young man and likely wrote the Gospel of John somewhere in the 80s AD, so as an older man, I have to think that in the time between that, he spent a lot of time thinking, am I going to write this down? And if I write it down, how am I going to do it? Because you know what, we have these other three, and, and I was there for all that stuff, it's really important, but I don't know if I need to tell all the same stories they've already told. What am I going to say if I write it down? And I just have to imagine that for decades he was thinking, hmm, oh yeah, that'd be good. 
got to make sure I include that story. But I sort of wonder, especially, how would he have thought about how it was going to begin? Where's he going to begin? What would he say? And so that's what we're looking at is the beginning of the gospel according to John. We're going to look at this really for the rest of this year and into, well into next year because we just feel like we need an extended season of focusing on Jesus and looking at Jesus and, and uh, just gazing at Jesus. And so what we've said is that the Gospel of John is really like a documentary film, that uh, think about John not as someone who's just sort of uh, capturing security camera footage of all the different things that Jesus did, but rather as a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker who's taking stuff that really happened, stuff he was a witness to, Stuff he heard with his own ears, experiences he saw with his own eyes, and he's writing it, but he's writing it in a, in a way that's intentional. He wants to get a response. He wants to get a reaction. He wants you to uh, do something as a result of what you hear. And we looked last week at what John intends for you to do. He says, all of the things that were written, this is what he said in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, I, I, I didn't include everything I could have included, but I included what I included so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one that Israel had been hoping for, the, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. That's his agenda, that's his hope, that's his desire. Now, a lot of commentators point out that chapter 1, 1 through chapter 1, verse 18 is a kind of overture. Now, uh, I didn't have to look that word up, but I kind of did, right, because I'm not like... I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you're like a huge opera fan or like a big, you go to a lot of classical music concerts. Don't raise your hand. Uh, I don't. So I don't exactly know what an overture is, but the way it was explained to me is the idea that at the beginning of an opera or the beginning of a, of a classical sort of big piece of music, there's often an overture, and in the overture, they play the stuff that's going to show up in the rest of the show. And, and so I went, oh, okay, so this is like something that I do more, know more about because my uh, teenage daughters are obsessed with this, which is Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton. Some of you are uh, Hamiltonians. Uh, you, you're fans of Hamilton, perhaps. Some of you are like, no. Well, okay, I, this is the best I can do, okay? I had a chance to actually, someone gave us tickets to go see Hamilton a couple years ago when it was in town. It was incredible. And then it came out on Disney+. Plus. So if you have Disney+, Plus, it's worth checking out. It's worth exploring. But if you do it, what you'll find is that the first song of Hamilton tells the whole story of Hamilton's life in just the first song. It's a kind of overture. What it's doing is saying, hey, the themes that are going to come up for the next two and a half hours, we're going to hit those right now. We're going to set the table for it right now. That's what John is doing in the first 18 verses of chapter 1. All the key themes that we see in this part of the book are the things that we're going to keep seeing through the rest of the book. We're going to look at it just a little bit at a time, and today we're looking at verses 1 through 5. And here's what we're going to see today. We're going to see two main things that feel a bit like paradoxes, but, but they're not. First, we're going to see that Jesus fulfills and confronts. He fulfills our expectations. He confronts our expectations. And secondly, we're going to see that Jesus is God and that Jesus is with God. Jesus fulfills and confronts, and Jesus is God and is with God. I'm going to spend more time on the first one because I think it's a newer idea for most of us. Um, so I'll spend a little more time on that. And here's that, that first idea, is that Jesus fulfills and confronts. 
Specifically, he's fulfilling and confronting the expectations of the people who would be reading this book. As I said, I just have to imagine that John was for a long time going, you know what, if I'm going to take the time to write this down, I want it to grab their attention. Any good communicator doesn't just stand up and just kind of roll off. They go, hey, what can I do to make them lock in? And John does something here really interesting. He uses three key words in this opening paragraph that are loaded with meaning. Three words that when the Jews heard them, they would have gone, ooh, you went there. When the Greeks heard them, they would have thought, ooh, what's he talking about? Really? And so John intentionally uses language that is charged, that is loaded, that the people hearing it would have thought certain things. And he says, you know what? Jesus is the fulfillment of your expectations related to those words, and Jesus confronts your expectation with those words. So let's look at these words together. The first one is the English word beginning, the Greek word arche. You might recognize this word from the idea of archaeology. It's, it's looking at things that are older from the beginning. In the beginning, it says in verse 1, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning. Now, the Jews would have heard this, and they would have instantly thought of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So their mind, when they hear arche, is creation, God creating. The, the Greeks would have had a little bit of a different understanding of this. They would have thought of, especially Socrates really shaped this, that the arche was this kind of originating principle, the sort of foundation that everything important was built on. And so here's what John's doing. When he says, in the beginning was the word, he's saying Jesus is the one who created all things, and Jesus is the one who everything's built on. He, he fulfills that expectation you had for there to be an arche, but you didn't expect it to be in him. Second key word that he uses is the word word. The Greek word is logos. It's a great Bible software that I love called Logos Bible Software. It's really, really helpful as I study these things. And logos comes from that word that's in verse 1 a few times, word. See that? In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's going to say in verse 14, the Word, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. This is, I think, sometimes confusing for those of you who are newer to faith or newer to stuff. And it's frustrating because a lot of times when you're new, they say, hey, read the Gospel of John. But then the first verse has like this really confusing thing it's talking about, the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And you're like... What word was it? Which word? What language? Was it written big or little? Like what, what, a word. And uh, what's going on here is, is John is, again, fulfilling and confronting the expectations of both Jews and Greeks. So the Jews had this understanding of the word being how God creates, that God speaks and things happen. They understood that, that God's word reveals and delivers and judges, that the way God acts through history is through his word. And so when, when John here is saying, in the beginning was the word, and this is a person, he's saying, whoa, 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 the word of God is actually a person. Now, the Greeks, again, had a little bit different understanding. They thought of logos being this kind of ideal, this principle, this rational principle. Uh, some people even called logos reason. Right? That in the beginning there was this reason, this logic, this ideal. 
And the closer you could get to understanding the ideal, the more enlightenment you'd have, the, the more fulfilling life you'd have. Um, and often this kind of secret knowledge, that's kind of the direction it took with the Gnostics. But here's what John does. He says, in the beginning was the Logos, and he took on flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us, and this is a person. This ideal, this principle is not a principle, it's a person. He confronts it. Third key word that you see here is the word light, Greek word phos, light. Verse 4, in him was life and the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Again, the Jews had an understanding of this, that light came from God, that God was the source of light. Uh, They had the experience of of walking through the wilderness, and at nighttime there was a pillar of fire, so that God, that's how God revealed himself, that he was a pillar of fire, so they could see the light. Um, The scripture says that God's word is like a lamp unto our feet, right? If you've ever had this experience maybe where you're like staying at a hotel or at a friend's house or somewhere that you're not kind of familiar with, and you wake up in the middle of the night, and you're like, where am I? And you realize, like, you have to go to the bathroom or something. You start, like, reach, grabbing, and you grab your phone. And you turn it on. Not to read your text messages, but you're like, ooh, now I can see. Right? And you sort of walk through the room like this, guided by the light that you see. That's how the Jews experienced this. That's how they saw this. That the light is, is what God gives to lead and to guide and direct you. Now, the Greeks had a different understanding of it. They thought of light mostly in the idea of wisdom. This wisdom that allows you to have true knowledge. Uh, if you want to go kind of all the way down the rabbit trail, uh, just look into um, Plato's Allegory of the Cave. is kind of a place where he talks about, the, and you get kind of a classical Greek understanding of light, that you had to kind of escape escape earth in order to find the light and be enlightened. That was the Greek understanding. John says, no, 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 no. It's not you escaping. It's that the light came to you. Now, I could see somebody going, John, don't you know that these words are going to like really trigger some people? Don't you know where this came from? especially the Greek understanding. Don't you know the philosophers? Don't you know Socrates? Don't you know Plato? Don't you know how they they don't share any of your worldview? Why are you using this? And I think it's because what John's trying to do is be a faithful missionary that says what you hope for is found in Jesus, but the way you're hoping for what you hope for will never deliver the hope you have. It won't come through. So he's fulfilling and confronting. He's affirming and challenging. This idea is, is uh, elaborated on by uh, Leslie Newbigin. He, let me just describe you Leslie Newbigin. He, he was a relatively short guy, a British guy, and um, actually the professor, one of the main professors that I studied under for my master's degree, had a relationship with Leslie Newbigin, wrote his doctoral dissertation about Newbigin and knew him. He always Mike would always talk about how short Leslie was. Um, but he was real spunky and really full of life. And Newbegin went from the UK to India, where he was a missionary in India for a long, long time. And then at some point, he comes back to the UK. And when he gets to the UK, he realizes, oh my goodness, the UK is a mission field. I left here thinking I was leaving a Christian place to go to a non-Christian place. Now I'm coming back and going, this isn't a Christian place. I need to think like a missionary in the UK, not just in India. 
Here's what he says as he reflects on the Gospel of John. He says, I suppose that the boldest and most brilliant essay in the communication of the Gospel to a particular culture in all Christian history, that's a big statement, is the Gospel according to John. Here the language and thought forms of that Hellenistic world, Hellenistic just means Greek-speaking, of that Greek-speaking world are so employed that Gnostics, those Greek philosophers that came after this time, Gnostics in all ages have thought that the book was written especially for them. And yet nowhere in Scripture is the absolute contradiction between the Word of God and human culture stated with more terrible clarity. I love that phrase, terrible clarity. He's saying people read this, and John is so using the language of Greek philosophers that Greek philosophers are going, oh, he must have written this for us. But then it's all confronting their assumptions. Isn't that brilliant? And what Newbegin described this to be, what, what John's doing, what we're called to do as the followers of Jesus, what Jesus did in his life is to have a missionary encounter with culture. A missionary encounter with culture. Here's the idea of a missionary encounter with culture. Is that in a missionary encounter with culture, uh, we are speaking the language of the culture and we are critiquing the culture with our words and our actions. We're doing both. We're saying there's some things in this that are good, that we can affirm, that we can praise, that we can rejoice in. We're going to speak this language in a way you understand it, but we're going to critique it while we do so. Now, we're very familiar, aren't we, with people who do one of those two things, right? Some people, they speak the language of the culture, they watch all the, book, all the movies, they read all the books, they watch, listen to all the music, they listen to articles, follow the tweets, they've developed all the acceptable language that you use in order to show that you are with it as you accommodate the culture. And we know these people and we kind of look at them and go, man... You look a lot like the culture, but you don't look like Jesus because you've just over-adapted to it. On the other hand, we know people that under-adapt, don't we? People who take all the fun out of fundamentalism, right? And, and all they have is critique. This is wrong. This is bad. This is dangerous. Over and over and over. They don't ever see any of the good parts of, of just common grace that exists. They just critique, just throw bombs, just make it mad. Right? And you look at that and you go, well, that doesn't feel very much like Jesus either. Why? Because Jesus wasn't given to license and he wasn't given to legalism. He was something totally different. He was having a missionary encounter with culture. That's what John's doing here. That's what Jesus is doing. And that's what we're being called to do as the people of God who follow Jesus in our lives. And so I want to just give you some examples of what a missionary encounter with culture might look like for us, right? So, so here would be the first one. One thing that the world just loves, they would say, we want freedom. We want freedom. And the way the world tends to define freedom is, I want to be free from God. I want to be free from nature. I want to be free from community and family and parental expectations and free from authority. I want to be free, right? And the culture goes, give me freedom. Let me be who I am. Now, if we're going to have a faithful missionary encounter with, with a world that says we want freedom, here's what we do. We go, okay, well, there's, there's an aspect of that that we can actually affirm. Because actually later in this book, in John chapter 8, verse 33, 
Jesus is going to say, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. You want freedom? Jesus goes, I'll make you more free than you could ever imagine. But real freedom comes through me. I'll give you the life that's free. But, but we can't just kind of leave it there. We also have to confront the world's approach to freedom. Because the world's approach to freedom leads to disaster. Think about for a moment what the world, driven by freedom, is pursuing, where it's going. Where it leads is all values become relative. There's no such thing as right. There's no such thing as wrong. It's just whatever my truth is for me. You can't judge me. You can't say I'm wrong. All values become relative. All relationships become transactional because instead of being in a real relationship with you where you might occasionally tell me I'm wrong, I'm just in a relationship with you so that you can affirm my choices to be free. Therefore, all identities become hyper-fragile. Right? I have to look inside and show who I am and be free and look how unconstrained I am and look how much I don't care about all the norms, but you better affirm it. Is that person free? No, that person's a slave to someone else's affirmation. That's not freedom. And the culture's approach to freedom means there's just all kinds of disappointment. Because you're looking for life in all this place and this place and this place and it disappoints, right? So we as the people of God should say, hey, there's nothing bad about freedom, but let's figure out where we find it. Because all the places you're looking, that ain't freedom. Real freedom is found in Jesus. And real freedom means you're so free that you're willing to lose your freedom in order to be free. That you don't, you can go, I, I, can, I can die to myself. I can serve. That's real freedom. Here's a second example. There's a very well-known organization right now in our culture that stands for a lot of different things, including freedom and justice for black people, disrupting the nuclear family, freedom from heteronormativity, affirming LGBTQ lifestyles, defunding and abolishing the police, and only seeing people through the lens of their race, and their privilege, and their class, and how oppressed they are. Do you have a hint who this organization might be? You've maybe, if you've seen the news in the last four months, you've noticed them. It's the organization Black Lives Matter. Now, if we're thinking like missionaries, we're okay. That movement, that organization is built on some foundations that we as the Church of Jesus Christ should rightly critique. Why? Because most of the things on that list are bad for black lives. We believe in a world that is made by God where God gets to decide what's right and what's wrong, what's good for human flourishing and what's not. We don't think that a lot of these things are good. Having a disrupted family, not good. Getting to decide your own sexuality for yourself, not good. Destroying authority and, and police, not good. There's just tons of this. It's not good for black lives. It's not good for Asian lives. It's not good for Latino lives. It's not good for white lives, for male lives, for female lives. It's just not good. And we should rightly critique that, right? But let's be a faithful missionary who doesn't just critique and throw the bombs, 
but who looks for, well, what are the things we can actually affirm? And what you can affirm is that sentence, black lives matter. Do black lives matter? Yes, 100% yes. How do we know they matter? Because God gets to say they do. Genesis 1.27 says we are made in the image of God. Therefore, black lives matter. And we live in a country with a very difficult history on this, where for many different times, not universally and not everywhere, it has seemed like black lives did not matter. So can a Christian affirm the sentence, black lives matter? Yes. Black lives couldn't matter, it, like, like, like there's no other place they could matter more than to Jesus. So of course we can affirm that. Should we critique the movement, the organization? Yeah. Now let me be clear here. I, I don't have a preference on whether you use or don't use the phrase black lives matter. Right? I've talked to Christians who go, you know what, it's just, uh, it's true, so I'm just going to say it. I've talked to other Christians who go, it's so loaded, it's so controversial, it's just not worth it. Okay, <laughs> I can see the wisdom of both of those things. But, but I just imagine somebody reading the Gospel of John, the first draft of it, saying, hey, John, let me, let me give you some feedback on this thing you wrote. This is really great, man. Like these stories, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't even talk about this. This is awesome. But I got a big question about the way you started this. Don't you know who's behind those words? And John goes, yeah, I know. Well, then why are you using them, man? When you say logos, don't you know that that comes from this like ungodly place? And here's what I think John might say. I don't know. But here's what I think John might say. God gets to define the terms. God gets to say what's true. God gets to say what matters. God's the one, right? Not the secular left, not the conservative right. God gets to decide. And so what God says matters is what matters. Amen? And so we can debate the wisdom of the term and the wisdom of using it. We cannot debate the sentence, black lives matter, because God says that they do. So we want to live constantly, and I realize this just creates so much tension for us as Christians that we don't want to live in, because we're used to people only critiquing things that they hate. But to be able to go, well, there's things to affirm here, and there's things to critique, that's a tension. We don't like tension. Just easier to lob bombs. Now, here's the challenge. A missionary encounter with culture that we said is speaking its language and critiquing it in word and action and action. So get this, if we're going to critique it, it isn't mostly about what we're going to put on Facebook. It's about how are we going to critique it with our lives? Are we going to show the world by our lives a better vision of freedom? Where we don't have to insist on our rights, we're actually so free we can give them up. Are we going to show with our lives a biblical vision of love that is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that doesn't care if they can pay you back? Are we going to show with our lives that we believe that black lives matter? That there's dignity in every person of every tribe and nation and color and background and language? Are, are we going to show that with our lives? Because that's the best way to really critique something. 
Rodney Stark has done a lot of work on the history of the early church, especially the early church in the first few centuries before, uh, uh, before Constantine kind of made the Roman Empire officially Christian. And what you see is that Christianity was spreading like wildfire through the Roman Empire. And a lot of people have gone, well, what was it about this thing? Because they didn't have money and they didn't have power and they didn't have status. And like, what, what made this movement so powerful of the early church? And Tim Keller kind of summarizes the lessons from that with these five key marks of the early church. Think about this. Think about how this critiques with action, not just with word. So the early church didn't just care for their own poor, but they cared for all poor. They took up collections not just for themselves, but for their community, for their neighbors. They cared about the poor. They showed it with their lives. Many of them were poor and sacrificed more than most of us are willing to sacrifice when we have far more wealth. But they didn't. They just, they just cared. Second thing that early church was marked by is a priority on living in multi-ethnic, multi-racial unity, right? Only in the Christian church did Jews and Gentiles coexist in relationship. Everywhere else, it was this tribe and that tribe and this language and that background, but the Christian church was able to bridge that gap. The, the world had to look on and go, man, there's nothing like this. Third mark of the early church is they were against both abortion and infanticide. Oftentimes it was far, far too common in the Roman Empire for people who didn't want a child to just abandon the child on the side of the road. Who were the people that took those children in? Christians. Foster care, adoption, it's in our blood as the people of God. Some of you are engaged in that so important work, right? You're putting action to that reality. Fourth mark of the early church was that they believed and they lived that sex was for marriage. Right? They lived in a hyper-sexualized culture of the Roman Empire. Prostitution was part of worship. It was everywhere. And they said, no, 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 no. sex isn't for, for self-fulfillment. Uh, you know, it's for self-giving, it's not for self-gratifying, it's for self-giving. And sex is just to be in this marriage relationship where husbands and wives are supposed to honor each other rather than use each other. That was countercultural. Here's the fifth mark of the early church, is they were forgiving in a shame and honor culture. All right, shame and honor culture, if you bring dishonor to the family, if you bring dishonor to the community, to the group, like you're just, you're banished. And the Christians said, no, 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 we can forgive now look at those five marks for a moment. Here's what's striking. The first two sound like things that political liberals care about. And the second two sound like things that political conservatives care about. And the last one nobody cares about. Right? Nobody's good at the last one. It's interesting, we, we now have a shame-honor culture, but we don't call it that, we call it cancel culture. Where if you say the wrong thing, whatever tribe you're part of, they will turn on you, you will lose your job, you will lose your status, you will lose your employment, and where do you go from there? Listen, only the Christian church offers forgiveness because we have a Savior who took on being canceled, who took on being shamed, and he forgave our sin. So, so get this. If, if we're faithfully following Jesus as a people, there will be times when we look awfully liberal. And there will be times where we look terribly conservative. 
and we should be difficult to put in a box, right? This is what makes voting so difficult for so many of us because you've got to end up picking somebody and it's just really hard. So as you make those decisions, I'm not going to tell you what to do on it, but here's what I would like to tell you to do and invite you to do is could we for this next season say, you know what, the platform we're running on is King Jesus 2020. Like, how about he's the king? How about he's the Lord? How about he shapes what's true? How about he shapes what's real? King Jesus 2020. That sounds good, doesn't it? Stay tuned. There's more about that coming. Now, here's one more thing to say about this before I move to the next point, is this means that Jesus and his people will be misunderstood. The verse 5 says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That word overcome could also be translated understood. The light shines in the darkness, the darkness doesn't get it, doesn't make sense it can't label it and it can't box you in on it and the result is that sometimes when the darkness doesn't understand it the darkness comes against it but the good news of this passage is that if we follow King Jesus in 2020 or 2021 or any other year that we are following the one who will not be overcome and we get more of an understanding of why that is in the next part now this next part is uh, not as controversial. You can take a breath. It doesn't feel as controversial, but it's actually way more controversial. Jesus is God and is with God. And he went, "That, that was controversial? Yeah. And there wasn't anybody reading John's gospel who assumed that a man could be God. I'm not going to be able to spend as much time on this, not because it's less important, but just because I think it's more familiar to a lot of us. But John is unequivocally claiming that Jesus is God and is with God. He says in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Let me give you this definition of the Trinity. This comes from Dr. Wayne Grudem. And I think it's a helpful definition. He says this, the Trinity is this doctrine, that God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, and there is one God. So uh, when you're tucking your little girl in, and she's like, hey, uh, how come Jesus like prays to God if he's God? I thought he was God. Why does he pray to God? Just, just tell him that. Listen, Mary, God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person's fully God. There's one God. Night, night. That'll just clear it up. And the reality is it's just, it's super hard to explain the Trinity, right? A lot of times there's actually these, like, people try to use analogies of it. Maybe you've heard analogies of a clover or an egg or water or different personality types or whatever. Eh. They don't work. I don't have time to explain why they don't work. But here's the thing. The Bible never gives us an analogy of the Trinity. The Bible never explains it. The Bible just says, you want to see God? His name's Jesus. Look at him. Look at him. 
And that's what John's claiming. So let's just think about these, these phrases for a little bit. God eternally exists is part of that definition. Well, the beginning of verse 1 explains that Jesus is eternal. In the beginning was the Word. Just like in the beginning was God, uh, God was just preexistent. He's always been. He's eternal. So is Jesus. Jesus, we see, is a distinct person, right? It says as three persons. Jesus is a distinct person. Look what it says. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You go, wait, wait, wait a minute. So was he with God or was he God? Yes. So with God means he he was with God the Father, but he was not God the Father, but he was God the Son. Was he a different God? No, there's one God. But I'm confused. Look at Jesus. Listen to Jesus. He's a distinct person. Each person is fully God, the next part of that definition says. Well, Jesus is God, right? The word was God. Verse 3 tries to make it really clear that Jesus is God. All things were made through him. Wait, 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 John. Wait a minute. All things were made through him? So you're saying he's the creator? So you're saying he's God? Wait, 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 John. All things? And he goes, all right, let me just be clear. Without him was not anything made that was made. You mean nothing? Nothing. (laughs) He's like going, do you get the point? Jesus is God. He's the creator. The, The rest of the New Testament picks up on this. Colossians 1 says, for by him all things were created by Jesus in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. And for him, he's before all things. In him, all things hold together. That's a big claim. Jesus is God. Hebrews 1 says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus made the world out of nothing. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is controversial. This is big. This is bold. Jesus is God. Listen, I can go to Ikea and I can get some furniture and I can assemble it. I I mean, by the end of the day, I'll probably be swearing and sinning because I will hate it so much and it will be so difficult for me. And a hundred times I'll have gone, Molly, help. All right, but I, I can assemble it. You know what I can't do? Let there be desk. <laughs> and there was desk. Right, somebody actually after the last service told me a, a joke. I thought this was actually pretty good. So I'm gonna try to remember it and tell it. But So here, here was a joke that... Uh, there's a bunch of scientists and they're standing before God. And uh, they say, hey God, we think we can do uh, what you can do. He says, okay, well let's, let's see. So God reaches down and he grabs some dirt and he blows into it and makes it into a man. That's what he did in Genesis 1. And so the scientists go, okay, we can try that. And so they reach down to grab the dirt and God says, wait, 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 make your own dirt. <laughs> Jesus made his own dirt. He's the creator. He's the Lord. Why can he not be overcome? Because he's God. Why is he misunderstood by a world who hates God? Because he's God. 
But this is who Jesus is, the word who became flesh, the light who shines in the darkness, the life who tasted death so that we wouldn't have to, the God who came near, who challenged our assumptions and fulfilled our deepest dreams. That's Jesus. Life with him is not going to be comfortable, but life with him is going to be so good. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for Jesus. There's no one like him. And we ask you, Father, to help us to experience Jesus again. As we come to the Lord's Supper, as we respond in singing, would we taste and see that he's good? God, we want to be faithful witnesses, faithful missionaries to this world that is increasingly dark. God, we don't want to just lob bombs at it, and we don't want to just assimilate into it. Help us to be faithful, to live in tension, to stand for what's true while we love people. Oh, God, give us your grace. Give us your spirit. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.